Every holiday season, it's the same thing. My kids want the latest Instaphone, the cool new Playbox with Kung Fu grip, and a dozen other things I could barely pronounce or afford. It's enough to make you crazy. Well, not anymore. Why spend a fortune on consumer electronics when you could subscribe to Grover.com and get the latest gear and gadgets for a fraction of the price? Grover is a subscription service that allows you to rent consumer electronics flexibly for a low monthly price. Grover offers phones, drones, laptops, gaming equipment, cameras, and more. And the best part is, Grover has your back covering up to 90% of the repair and damage costs of the device. It's like Netflix or Spotify, but for electronics and subscribing is really f***ing easy. So go to grover.com slash culpa. First, browse and search for the tech you want. Second, select how many months you'd like to rent. And finally, Grover offers one, three, six, or 12 month subscription plans. Place an order and make your first monthly payment. It's just that f***ing easy. You like Apple, folks? Well, how do you like these apples? Grover's prices are insane. iPhones starting at $44, MacBooks for under 50, a Nintendo for less than $15 a month, or AirPods for $12.90, smart speakers for $7, so you can listen to my show in every room of your house. With Grover, you can subscribe to hundreds of products from your favorite brands like Apple, Samsung, Bose, Dell, Razer, Garmin, and many others by visiting grover.com slash culpa. Grover's circular model contributes to the reduction of e-waste by reusing their electronics across multiple life cycles. And there's a big deal, folks, so don't be schmuck. Only a Trump would pay full price for consumer electronics when all you need to do is subscribe and save serious money. So sign up for Grover right now and get 10% off each month you rent on any item in the store. That's 10% off when you use promo code MAYACULPA at checkout. That's Grover.com slash MAYACULPA. Grover.com slash MAYACULPA. Go there now. The January 6th investigation appears to have discovered um, that the incriminating letter um, that was drafted from the U.S. Justice Department to Georgia state officials, essentially inducing them to flip the election results in that state, rather than just being uh, the product of Jeffrey Clark, a single Justice Department official um, who's announced he's going to plead the fifth in that investigation, um, who has already been held in contempt by the investigation, rather than just being his work, as has been described in public reporting, the investigation has discovered White House metadata on that document, which shows that it appears to to be the product of the Trump White House. If that product, if that work product is in fact a crime, um, raises all new questions as to where this investigation is going. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. The January 6th committee is wasting no time in its effort to uncover the truth and paint a definitive portrait of what happened that terrible day. But the ticking clock on the committee's very existence has almost doomsday feel as the GOP seems poised to retake the House in next year's midterm elections. 
If that occurs, the committee and all its work will almost certainly be shut down. Thus far, Trump and his band of criminal sycophants have successfully stalled and bluffed to the point where we're just weeks away from the one-year anniversary of January 6th and still no closer to finding out the who, what, where, when, and why of what happened. Very methodically and with a ton of work, not just 250 people, but they have really good investigators behind the scenes. On, on the points you're making, look, I think you're right. We hit the Klieg lights moment. People, you know, it's the John Dean or what, you know, Oliver North. Everyone's going to be riveted and watching. And sure, the Republicans at that point will say, oh, it's a phony baloney commission, et cetera. But that'll be the eighth paragraph of the story. The riveting part will be the actual testimony. And I think at that point, they'll, they'll be they'll have considered they made a miscalculation in not playing along and leaving it completely for the Dems who cannot, by the way, because of Cheney and Kinziger say this is bipartisan, etc. Next week could prove to be a watershed moment for the committee as it listens to testimony from Trump former chief of staff Mark Meadows, who CNN's Ellie Honig referred to as mission control for pushing all of Trump's crackpot conspiratorial schemes. According to former Trump White House officials, Meadows reached out to some of the country's top national security officials in an effort to connect them to Trump allies who were pushing unfounded claims of foreign election interference and voter fraud. When you step back, though, this is really why Mark Meadows is the single most important witness to the January 6th investigation, other than Trump himself, and he's never going to realistically testify. This is why Meadows is so key, because he was running point. He was mission control for a whole of government effort to try to steal this election. This wasn't just some one-off or something he did once. He was reaching out to our most serious agencies, to the Pentagon, the FBI, DOJ, the National Security Advisors, to try to get them to put their stamp on this craziness. And it, it, the fact is, it sounds like wild conspiracy wingnut stuff, but it was coming from the chief of staff of the White House. That is incredibly dangerous. And I think it tells you exactly why Meadows is such a key focal point here. Not only did Meadows try to get top government officials to investigate baseless conspiracy theories being espoused by the likes of Rudy fucking Giuliani, Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell, he also passed along conspiratorial materials himself including YouTube videos and other information that alleged widespread evidence of voter fraud sources say. That now we know Mark Meadows was, was calling the FBI, the CIA, the Pentagon and others, and among other things, wanted to look into an alleged plot by China to change the thermostats in voting machines and change the vote totals. These are like ostensibly serious people. Meadows at one point was an elected member of Congress. And this stuff happened. These and other actions Meadows took on behalf of Trump, sources say, were not necessarily driven by his strong belief in the validity of these claims, but instead by his desire to please a president who was hyper-focused on injecting baseless conspiracy theories of election fraud into official government channels. In my mind, this is so much worse. It's one thing to be mentally insane and infected with all manner of conspiratorial beliefs, but it's another fucking thing to do so on the bidding of a president you know is fucking insane and for whom you want to please as a matter of sucking up to power. People now, now taking the fifth 
all of a sudden, unexpectedly, potential crimes committed in trying to overturn the election. And now suddenly, the question of whether those potential crimes involve not just advisors to the Trump White House, but people inside the Trump White House itself who left fingerprints, who left digital metadata on their work that the committee now has. While Meadows' attempt to enlist the Justice Department in the effort to overturn the election were documented by a recent Senate investigation, a complete understanding of how Trump's chief of staff pushed other federal agencies to pursue dubious claims of a rigged election is still coming to light. I've got information, man. New shit has come to light. And, and shit, man. At one point, Meadows contacted national security officials at several agencies with what he said was potential evidence of a massive conspiracy by China to hack the U.S. election by using thermostats to change results in voting machines, according to two sources with direct knowledge of the situation. According to one of those sources, Meadows reached out to officials at the FBI, the Pentagon, National Security Council, and Office of the Director of National Intelligence to tell them about election fraud claims, including the China thermostat allegation, which Flynn and Powell have been pushing. He is the center of the center. He is Trump's conduit to all these agencies for all these wacky theories from distortion of U.S. law to possible international uh, conspiracies with China and the like. And you can see now why they didn't want to refer him for criminal contempt, because with Bannon, they lose his testimony when he goes over to that other side. With Meadows, they really need it. Now, look, he's got a really solid uh, criminal uh, for, former Deputy Attorney General Counsel, if they do tiptoe up to the edge of criminal exposure, he'll certainly uh, refuse on Fifth Amendment grounds. Mm -hmm. But for now, he's sitting for what the committee has called an initial deposition, so they have in mind more than one. And they've reached a deal to avoid the criminal contempt, which would have been catastrophic for him. So he may have some criminal exposure potentially, but he'll steer clear of that and can still give the committee all kinds of valuable information because he was, as you say, at Trump's shoulder during these critical days. According to a CNN report, Meadows was perpetually enabling this insane stuff and was too scared to stand up to Trump, according to a source who attended multiple meetings at the White House and other agencies where Meadows was present. He was scared to say no to anyone and Trump particularly. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought? Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Even after mid-November, when a group that included Trump-appointed election security officials validated the results of the 2020 election, declaring it to be the most secure in American history, Meadows continued to show a willingness to pursue avenues to undermine that confidence on behalf of his boss, according to four sources with knowledge of his actions at the time. Basically, the end of January and the, excuse me, the end of December into January, that period right before the insurrection, Mark Meadows sending emails to the acting attorney general, Jeff Rosen, wording emails, asking him 
to look at at least three different conspiracies, two of which had already been debunked by investigators in both Georgia and New Mexico. And then also to look at the conspiracy that you mentioned, which was whether or not people could download software onto American voting machines from Italy, which most people in the national security community, I think, would say was absolutely not going to happen and not possible. Now, we have no indication that the Justice Department ever acted on any of this. In fact, we've been told that Acting Attorney General Jeff Rosen certainly did not open any of these investigations. But what it shows us is that the White House was pressuring the Justice Department to basically give credence, lend credibility to these conspiracy theories as the president was looking for a way to retain power. Flynn and Powell initially relied on Meadows to act as the liaison between those seeking to overturn the 2020 election and top officials across various agencies that they thought might be able to help in the effort, the sources said. Meadows would pass election fraud information from these outside Trump advisors to government officials and essentially say that he was doing so because Trump wanted him to, according to one source familiar with the former chief of staff's outreach. During one encounter, Meadows attempted to set up a meeting between Flynn and top intelligence officials to discuss the claim China and hacked voting machines via special kinds of thermostats. Yeah, well, I think that what we've seen is that conspiracy theories have almost taken over the messaging of the Republican Party and that there's a schism right now within the party as to what to do about this. Do we feed them and fuel them, play off of them and try to win elections based on them? Certainly the idea that the election was fraudulent has been the basis for so many of the new voting laws uh, introduced in various states? Or is there a pushback and a move back toward the truth, including the fact that Joe Biden won the election? During the final week of December and first days of January, Meadows repeatedly emailed then acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, urging him to investigate the Italian satellite conspiracy theory referred to as Italy Gate in emails uncovered by the Senate investigation, whose findings were released in October. And Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, was still trying to get the Justice Department to use the levers of government to subvert the election and keep Trump in power. New emails show that in the last weeks of the Trump administration, then Chief of Staff Mark Meadows pushed the Department of Justice to investigate conspiracy theories about the election. That revelation, according to a New York Times report, shows Meadows repeatedly asked acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen to look at claims of fraud in the 2020 election. One email requested the DOJ investigate a fantastical theory that pe people in Italy had used military technology and satellites to remotely tamper with voting machines in the U.S. and switch votes for Trump to votes for Joe Biden. Meadows also shifted some of his efforts toward Georgia, where Trump was working to overturn the results of Biden's victory. And here, Meadows could still land himself in criminal jeopardy. So, Mr. President, everybody is on the line. And just so this is Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, just so we all are aware, um, uh, on the line is Secretary of State uh, and uh, two other individuals, uh, Jordan and Mr. Germany uh, with him. You also have uh, the attorneys that represent uh, the president, uh, Kurt and Alex, and Cleta Mitchell, uh, who is not the attorney of record, but uh, has been involved, myself, and then uh, the president. So, Mr. President, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. All I want to do is this. I just want to find 
11,780 votes. Criminal investigators in Georgia have been quietly conducting interviews, collecting documents, and working to build a line of communication with congressional investigators as they aim to build a case against Trump for his alleged attempts to overturn the state's 2020 election results. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis recently hired an experienced RICO prosecutor to join the case as the evidence points to a well-coordinated push by Meadows and Trump to pressure Georgia officials to overturn the election. The Trump investigation is ongoing. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis quietly plowing ahead in her investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. Willis's team has been conducting interviews, collecting documents, and trying to build a line of communication with congressional committees investigating the January 6th insurrection, sources tell CNN. People are being interviewed. Things are being researched. It's where any unindicted case would be. The select committee investigating January 6th has already asked the National Archives for a range of documents, including any records of White House communications with Georgia officials. The document request covers communications with Meadows, Giuliani, and other attorneys who participated in Trump's now notorious call to Raffensperger. Despite this public information, don't expect Meadows to suddenly become contrite. The man has not found his moral compass. And I know that on paper, maybe it looks good, it sounds good, Meadows is cooperating, but is he really? Because when you get down to it, this is the crux of the matter. What did you do, Mark Meadows, in relation to the FBI, to DOJ? And what was Donald Trump's involvement? And if the way this plays out is Mark Meadows gets to say, no guys, not answering that, that's out of bounds, that's privileged or whatever, then this is a bogus deal. Then the committee is not gonna get anything out of it. What are they gonna talk about? What, what color were the drapes in the Oval Office? What do you guys eat for lunch on January 6th? I mean, this is what they need to know. So if this is out of bounds, the committee got played here. We'll see if they're able to get it out of Mark Meadows. He's only testifying to avoid the fate of Bannon and Jeffrey Clark. His participation will be closely watched by Trump for any hint of betrayal, and Meadows is reportedly afraid of his fucking shadow when it comes to dealing with Trump. This one will be interesting to watch, folks, so stay tuned. Don't cry for me, White House staffers. The truth is I will infect you all through my tweeting, my mad existence. I broke my promise, won't keep my distance. I always say too much, never mind the thousands of lies I have told to you. As for wearing masks and acting sane, that is nothing that I will ever do. So Cry for me, Secret Service. Though COVID might just well kill you, while on my joyride I spread the virus, I broke my promise. Won't keep my distance. 
And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa is the esteemed ABC News Chief Washington correspondent, Jonathan Carl. His latest book, Betrayal, the final act of the Trump show, is a highly readable and worthy expose into the dark days surrounding January 6th, Trump's deadly bungling of COVID and his exhaustive effort to overturn the election. The Washington Post has the best review of the book I've read so far, as it puts the book in the proper context for our conversation today. Carl calls the story betrayal for good reason. The early chapters establish a pattern of duplicity directed at supporters, advisors, and federal employees who trusted Trump at their peril. Trump betrayed his supporters by blatantly disregarding their physical safety at his super spreader events on the road and at the White House. We killed Herman Cain, admitted one staffer after a Trump rally in Tulsa. Hundreds of thousands of Americans had died of the deadly virus, but when he returned to the White House as he recovered from his own case of COVID-19, Trump childishly removed his mask for the cameras, defying science and sense. But as Carl suggests, Trump was a knave, not a fool. He engaged in death-defying acts of political theater to intimidate underlings and showcase the supremacy of his own truth over reality. Carl explains the divisions within Trump's camp on election night and the ensuing chaos that resulted when Rudy fucking Giuliani and his entourage, otherwise known by others in the Trump circle as the crazies, began alleging a vast global conspiracy of voter fraud and supposedly involved Cuba, China, Spain, Venezuela, George Soros, Germany, and CIA director Gina Haspel, as well as Dominion and Smartmatic, makers of voting machines. Carl shows how these lies, distortions, falsehoods, and in his words, wacky conspiracy theories not only lacked merit, but were also utterly fantastic. At times, Carl blames this bedlam on the people around Trump rather than the former president himself. But it was Trump who abruptly fired Defense Secretary Mark Esper via tweet on November 9th, throwing the Pentagon into chaos, and it was fucking Trump who embraced the support of QAnon adherents, such as Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who urged him to fight on. The overwhelming evidence gathered in betrayal is that Trump sought out and promoted the views of incompetent, unqualified, and unhinged people because they satisfied his authoritarian impulses and his personal pursuit of power. This is perfect timing for this discussion just days before Mark Meadows, Trump's number one sycophant, is poised to testify before the January 6th committee. Jonathan, Carl, and I discuss all of this and more, so let's go now to that conversation. So, John, in your new book, Betrayal, the final act of The Trump Show, you describe a chilling purge of anyone deemed to be disloyal to the president. And trust me, I know all about this. And I'm going to quote something from your book. In those final weeks of his administration, those final couple of months when he took his darkest turn, there was nobody around to rein him in or to question what he was doing. Do you think now as more evidence and more information emerges that this was Trump's plan all along should he lose the election? Because some folks say that he was misled by a band of hardcore crazies and that after the purge, that's all that was left. 
while others believe that it was the plan all along and the purge was a means to move aside all those that stood in the president's way. Tell, tell me, what do you think? I think he clearly had a plan. Uh, you know, I'm not saying it's a plan that was carefully choreographed and would culminate in January 6th and all that, but he clearly had a plan, uh, which I go into it, you know, I provide evidence in the book. He had a plan that if he was going to lose this election, he was going to claim that he won. Um, and he was methodically over the course of 2020 planting the seeds of doubt in the election results, especially when he learned uh, from his own campaign team in late spring of 2020 that it looked grim, that, that, that COVID had just turned the country against him and he had very little chance of winning. Uh, that, that Biden was building up a, a lead even before Biden formally won uh, the nomination. And, uh, you know, he so he had a two track strategy, which is do everything he could to win the election and to set conditions to come out and dispute the election if he lost it. Look, so let's just go into your quote here. I mean, we're talking about the crazies. Who are you referring to in yeah. specific? Were you referring to Jared Kushner? Because he's fucking batshit crazy in the weirdest of ways. <laughs> no, no, I'm dead serious. In the weirdest yeah. of ways. Yeah. He seems like this mild, meek, you know, sort of nothing, right? But he's devious as all hell, as is Ivanka. And then you had, of course, the Steve Bannons of the world that everybody knows is batshit crazy, you know, fucking racist that he is. But then Steve Miller, the same thing. Who are the crazies you're referring to? I'm very specifically re referring to Rudy Giuliani and his entourage, Sidney Powell, that whole group that came in. And I'm and that was not my term. I mean, I, I don't I'm not going to dispute anything you just said. The term crazies was how uh, the, the the campaign leadership referred to these people. They were the crazies. Uh, so that that's who I was referring to. The ones that came in, not simply with a, you know, an effort to try to challenge the election in a kind of ham handed way, the way they were trying to claim dead people voting in this and all that. They were trying to uh, claim that the voting machines were rigged, that the CIA had a supercomputer that, that, that worked with off, offshore servers uh, to switch votes in places like Antrim County, Michigan, uh, that, that wireless Chinese thermostats were flipping votes in Georgia, that the Italians had a military spy satellite. Now, these were things that were pursued by those people. The Wait, crazy. Are you telling me that this that's not Sydney true? Powell thing. Are you telling me it's not true that my thermostat is not interfering with the electoral process? Are, are you really trying to tell me that there are no such thing as Jewish space lasers? Because for the because yeah, I want yeah. to tell you, of course, being of the Jewish faith, I was proud of my people for putting in space yeah, lasers. Space lasers are good. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's the thing. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the crazy thing about the crazies is the crazies actually got through to the people at the highest levels. I mean, obviously Trump, but put him aside for a second. I mean, Mark Meadows was the chief of staff. He was supposed to be, you know, I mean, that's a pretty important job, right? Chief, White House chief of staff. He was demanding that the Justice Department and the Pentagon, you know, track down and pursue these uh, these crazy conspiracy theories. So is Mark Meadows one of the crazies? No, not in the context in which I wrote, but he's the guy in power that allowed this stuff 
uh, uh, to, to, to kind of metastasize throughout the executive branch of the Trump administration. Was it not Mark Meadows that put up the picture of me during my House Oversight Committee, liar, liar, pants on fire? Does that, I don't know if it makes him crazy, just plain fucking stupid, or then tried to put up Lynn Patton, who is the only black um, person to work in the executive position at the Trump organization, who, by the way, you know, is biracial, um, the only one to put up the turnaround to say that she knows Trump is not a racist. And by putting the one and only black person in the company up in the, on the stand, what, what Mark Meadows, right, who was also just incompetent, didn't realize, I'm the one that got Lynn the job. I knew Lynn before, you know, before even the Trumps did. I'm the one that introduced her to Eric and actually convinced him that she's really a good, a good person and a good employee. So he's putting up now somebody that I brought into the company to turn around and to argue a point that we all know that Trump is. He is an Archie Bunker racist. You know, as, as, as actually Bannon referred to him, right? He's Bunker. He's Bunker. Uh, as if that was somehow endearing. Uh, but, um, you know, it's, you and I haven't spoken in a long time, but, but I, I feel like we have been kind of moving around in exactly the same orbit. Wait, I'm I sorry, you, wait, wait, you, you were at Otisville? What federal institution, <laughs> Jonathan, did you end up going no, to? No, All right. no, <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess you've had a, a vantage point that's a little beyond mine. Winner! But I was in Hanoi. <laughs> I was in Hanoi when you testified. Ah, I remember that. And, and it was me, and I asked Trump. And that's when he, I mean, he launched. He just went all in, you know, attacking you in, 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 in a, you know, uh, in, 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 a, in a very Trumpian way. But I also asked him, I, I, was, I was in the Oval Office shortly after your office was first raided by the, uh, by the FBI, and I asked him if he would, if he was considering a pardon for you. I don't know if you remember. I remember. This, it. You saw this, but but he snapped at me. Uh, that's a stupid question. That's a stu- and he just snarled at me. Um, but I, I've wondered. Did, did I mean? Did that ever? Did he? Why didn't he try to like buy your silence with a pardon, or did he? I mean, do you what 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 was going on in his head? I mean, he's obviously he would do anything. So you know, the topic of pre pardons did come up, and it was something that was reviewed and so. On. And you'll recall, he started speaking about it on television. You see. Trump is not that difficult to understand if you understand him. I talk about it ad nauseum in my book, Disloyal. If you actually pulled my book apart, you would understand how he acts. And how he acts on Monday will be the same way that he acts on Thursday and then two weeks the following Wednesday. And so he doesn't change because he's not creative like he thinks that he is. So what ended up happening is he starts to project like he did as you brought up in, in the book Betrayal, as well as in the opening of this Mea Culpa podcast, where you turn around and you said that what Donald does is he, tel- he telegraphs what he wants to do, right? And at which point, just think about what he was doing when he was talking about pre-pardons. And I believe verbatim, he turned and said, I have the right to do what I want. I'm the president. I could pre-pardon. I could put an end to this whole thing if I really wanted. 
However, there were individuals inside that were saying that would be political suicide for you. Don't do it. He's not worth it, meaning me. Um, you know, he's loyal, right? He said he would take a bullet for you. Just don't do it. In fact, what we should probably do is ramp up the, the investigation, ramp up the attack on him from afar that they don't know it's coming from us to ensure that you're fully protected. That's what was going on when it comes to Donald, right? But not Donald so by himself, but rather with that team of assholes that put themselves around him. You see, when I had Malcolm Nance on the show, and I had him on more than once, one of the things that we talk about is the whole concept of the useful idiot. That's what Steve Bannon sees in Donald Trump. He's a useful idiot. It's a, it's a tool for him to advance himself. The same thing with Jared. The same thing with Ivanka. For them, going to the White House wasn't to be with daddy, like they used to say. It was in order to advance their own financial and their own careers, which is why, as you see now, Jared somehow manages to open up some sort of a hedge fund. And it's pre-funded with like two plus billion dollars all coming from the Middle East. Well, you don't have to be a fucking rocket science to realize where that money's coming from. It's a fucking payoff. I don't care if it's from Israel. I don't care if it's from Saudi, from Qatar. It doesn't make a difference. I'd like to know who's actually investing. Considering, why would you invest with a guy who lost the, who literally created the worst real estate deal in the history of New York City, that being 666 Fifth Avenue, started purchasing yeah. a whole group of multifamily properties with an Israeli um, billionaire's money, lost him probably 40% of his investment. Why would you ever invest with someone who's just a, you know, who's just a complete loser? You want to you, you be part of that, you know, that three-peat losing situation? I don't, not if I'm putting my money, and there's too many other big hedge funds that were out there that actually make money, that know what they're doing, that are, that are just properly built out as an institution, and he is not one of them. And these are just what they do. They look at him as a useful idiot. How can I advance myself by being close to, you know, to this useful idiot? You know, I, I, one thing in, in betrayal, I recount that Jared happened to be in Saudi on January 6th. He was coming back from Saudi. And that, if you remember, he was there for the Qatar deal. What the hell did he have to be in Saudi for? To For, for, for a Saudi Qatar deal? It didn't involve the United States. <laughs> Again, I mean, now go and look to see who bailed his ass out of 666 Fifth Avenue. Yeah. I believe it was Qatar through Brookfield Properties. Um, I'd like to see who it is that's investing in the boy genius right, um, with this hedge fund. These are nothing but payoffs. I wouldn't be shocked if they turned around and the deal was made instead of an extra $5 billion in military um, armaments that we were selling to the various countries. They gave them a discount of 50% so long as that you put $2 billion. Into Trust me, there's nothing that is legitimate with this guy. Nothing. And the same holds true for Ivanka. The same for Don, who was trying to take over 5G with a whole group of other individuals because his daddy was the president. He's the namesake. The same thing with Eric. When the same thing with what happened over at the, um, uh, the Trump 
DC project where they were overcharging for room stays to foreign dignitaries and so on, where that money was agreed early on, would go back to the US government, but it doesn't. But you know, you also made a statement, Jonathan, where you turn around and you said that it wasn't carefully planned, meaning, you know, um, this exodus of Trump and uh, knowing that he was going to lose based on information provided by right. whether it's Brad Parscale and we, of course, whatever yeah, happened yeah, to yeah. Brad Parscale in that investigation, everything just sort of slides, right? But remember something, nothing, nothing is ever carefully planned with Trump because he doesn't exactly. have the ability to sit down like you and I are doing now for an hour and to talk something through. If it's not done with three to five bullet points, one-liners each, he has no attention span. How do you run a country? It's not strategic. Nothing is strategic. It's it's all gut. Nothing. It's all it's all. But gut. It, he he goes follows his instinct. Right, but his instinct is predicated on what? Where is this knowledge coming from? He's not a good student. He doesn't read anything other than the newspaper as long as it has his name in the article. So how are you learning? You're not sitting down with your joint chiefs of staff, with advisors, with people like you know, uh, you know. Um, uh, General generals or, you know, um, Middle Middle Eastern, you know, um, and former ambassadors who have knowledge of what's right. going on there. Nothing like that. It's whatever he believes from the top of his head. Do you see the stuff that came out from the CIA uh, just 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 in the last day that he did not get a single uh, intelligence briefing during the last month of his presidency? Yeah. Now. I mean, that's that's a remarkable thing, except that it's Donald Trump. But but when you think about what was going on in the world, we, we were uh, gen, we, we were coming up on the anniversary of the Soleimani assassination. And there was all this concern. I write about this as well, that that the Iranians uh, were going to do a try to take out, a you know, some kind of a U.S. target on the anniversary. Uh, you had you, you had given a lot of concerning developments around the world. And the guy's not even getting a, a single intelligence briefing. Well, who was taking the briefings? Jared, right? Secretary of everything and the secretary of do nothing. Who was taking the briefings? By the way, if I'm not even mistaken, I don't think Jared ever even cleared um, that that high level uh, top secret clearance no, level, the, right? The, the, the I know that Trump yeah, just gave yeah. it to him, which, as Donald said, is Donald said he could do with anything that he wants. He can do it. He has the power, I have the to, power do it. to do he it. Whatever he wants. He could declassify everything. He could think it with a. De- I mean, <laughs> it's one of the powers the president has, like the power, the pardon power. But you know, on on the pardon question, I, I think there's an, there's a, there's a something of a line from his. He decided not to not to pardon you, but what does he do on January twentieth? He pardons right before leaving office, Steve Bannon. What was what was what was behind that pardon? I think that's a very interesting well, question. Again, it goes straight to Donald's psyche, which is he's trying to tell others that might be inclined to do what I did, which is to provide testimony, to provide documents willingly. If you do that, you'll end up like Michael Cohen. You're going to prison. But if you're like Roger Stone, if you're like Paul Manafort, if you're like Steve Bannon and you fight, you fight like hell against the system on my behalf, fealty to the king, I will take yeah. care of you. 
it's just a it's a it's just a subliminal message that he's putting out there for anybody that was thinking about providing testimony. Look at what they're doing now. Mark Meadows refusing to cooperate with the January 6th committee. Dan Scavino, who it's comical. The guy was a caddy who then became the general manager of Trump National Golf Club in Westchester, was fired for incompetence, and then goes into tech where he becomes like Donald's tweeter in chief, right? His chief of tweeting. And then ultimately takes on a high level position over there. Why? Because there was nobody else. And then you take a like Cash Patel and uh, who's the other clown that also is refusing maybe now that they're finally speaking. But that's my point. The point is, if you cross me, right, bad things like what happened to Michael Cohen will happen to you. But if you if you pledge your undying loyalty to me, yep, like Paul Manafort, you may end up in prison, but I'm giving you a pardon. Or, or I'll get because it for it's, you. It's astounding. I mean, it's, you know, Bannon, when you think about it, so what Bannon's crime was profiteering off of Trump's supporters, was, 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 was fraudulently ripping off, you know, people that believed in Donald Trump and using Trump's name. I mean, that's like, you know, Trump Trump likes to make the money himself, but he doesn't like people profiting off off him at all, obviously. I mean, so Bannon committed like two major sins. One, a sin against Trump by profiting off his name, but also ripping off, you know, Trump's most loyal supporters. And the guy gets a pardon. Yeah. Or even I mean, that's like the last pardon. That's well, what issued, about, you know? Paul, I mean, what about Paul Manafort, who actually had like 20 million dollars overseas? I get charged with tax evasion. Yeah. I have never in my life had an overseas bank account. I've never had an overseas business. I've never had an overseas nominee. Unlike Paul Manafort, when they took my 14 million documents, I had no fake wire transfers or fake uh, invoices putting out there. Every single dollar that I had earned was in Capital One Bank. And every single bank statement was provided in an orderly three-ring notebook, which the feds could not believe when they saw it, showing that the money was sitting in Capital One. Who tax evades and puts all their money in the build in a bank that's located the base of the building that they live in? And Judge Pauly, with his brilliant comment, turns around and says, it was a sophisticated scheme. I responded back, what could be less sophisticated than putting all your money in the bank that's located the base of the building you live in and providing every single bank statement to your accountant? This guy, Jeffrey Getzel, who I'm suing right now, a total piece of shit, right? I mean, people have to understand, under Donald Trump, the weaponization of this Justice Department saw bounds that we have never seen before in our lives. But Jonathan, let me just move on on for one quick second, because you give a more complete look. Um, at how Trump was already positioning people for his post-election push by elevating figures like, um, what the fuck is that, Rick Rennell, uh, to positions of authority. What role did he play in the larger push to overturn the election? I mean, Grinnell, Grinnell's a, a fascinating case because this guy was made ambassador to Germany first. And everybody's like, oh my God, how could Rick Grinnell, who was kind of this... Twitter troll, uh, you know, a supporter for Trump. He had, he had served in the Bush administration. But how how does Rick Grinnell end up being the U.S. ambassador to Germany? But but then he's made the director of national intelligence, the acting director of national intelligence 
um, which is the single most important position in the intelligence community. Um, there was no way Rick Grinnell would ever be confirmed. I mean, there would have been a, a there would have been a, a list of Republican senators who would never have signed off on that. But he was acting. He stretches it out for you know while he can, and then eventually you know Trump Trump puts Radcliffe in there. Somebody can actually get confirmed. But where does Rick Grinnell go immediately from being the top intelligence official? It's to be part of that cast of characters challenging the election results. And I, you know, I recount him in Nevada. He, he was the one that we, he was sent to Nevada to challenge the results there. And it was a series of like absolutely absurd uh, allegations that they were saying about Nevada, um, including one I recount in the book where Grinnell claims he's got the smoking gun, this woman, you know, who went to uh, to vote. And then they claimed she had already voted when she got there. No, this was a to- well, it turned out. Yeah, she had. She had sent in a. I mean, it's, and, and he's the he's the again he, he's the he's the former top intelligence official for the United States government, and he's out in Nevada on the ground after the election, uh, just throwing out a, a bunch of bullshit. Excuse my no, language. No, yeah, listen, but, your language is good here on Maya Culpa. Okay, good. Because that's what it <laughs> so, is, Jonathan. It's exactly what it yeah. is. It's bullshit. He, you said it. You said it in the first minute that we were talking about how he knew that he was going to lose the election, and how he then decided to again deflect, promote whatever word that you want to use for Trump in order to turn around and to can be able to create the big lie. Right? That's all that he did. You see, I told you it was going to be stolen. I told you it was going to be stolen. Now, that, of course, works right when you lose. And if, in fact, that he won, nobody would ever talk about it. So it's, that's the only thing that he really pre-plans is his losses in order to blame his failures on somebody else. And that's why I said the other day on, um, on Meet the Press... When I when I went on on um, with uh, what you call with uh, Chuck Todd, I turned and said Donald's not Todd, going yeah. to run in 2024. Jonathan, I know that you did reporting on this on how much money Donald has raked in from his supporters, how much money the RNC has taken from these unwitting fools, right? If yeah. in fact that he runs in 2024, which I continue to say he will not, and he loses, which he will. And I'm not even sure he becomes the nominee. That now changes the entire dynamics for him. He's no longer able to profit off of the big lie. What's he going to do? Turn around and say, they stole it from me. Quite frankly, I won in 2020. And I won again in 2024. (laughs) They quite frankly stole it from me again. All right. I don't understand. What kind of country is this? Right. This is what's going to happen. He can't do it anymore. You can't be the boy who cries wolf each and every time that you lose, because now it's not nine million people more that voted for the other person, but it'll be 10 million or 12 million. And now he loses the big lie. He loses the big grift. And I said to Chuck Todd that we should actually do a documentary and it should be called the greatest grift in American history. Because that's what he's created from his loss. Nothing but a grift. Yeah, and, and, and actually, you and I have been saying, I, I say it differently than you, but, but you and I have been saying the same thing. Uh, people have asked me, as, as talking about the book, um, you know, is he going to run again? And my, and, my, and my subtitle is The Final Act of the Trump Show. By the way, Betrayal is the final act of the Trump Show. It is still ongoing. 
Uh, the question is, when does the curtain come down? But I do not think that he will run either. And I think it for essentially the same reason you just outlined, he does not want to face losing. And, you know, he may be deluded in many ways, but I think he is intelligent enough to know that he would lose and lose in spectacular terms because he lost last time, whatever he's, he's saying he lost last time. And then January 6th happens. I mean, he has alienated. I don't care how weakened Biden is, or if it's Kamala Harris or if it's Mickey mouse, you have, you know, a majority of the country that is not going to vote for him. So I think that he is aware of that. I think that, um, you know, uh, he does not want to face that. But he depends on the prospect of running to, to, to raise all that money. And he is raising money hand over fist from people who, frankly, can't afford to be donating the money. Yeah, it's true. And I also and, don't believe that he would even be the nominee. And everyone says, stop it, stop it. He's the head of the party. I, 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 I agree He would with not. You. I agree yes, with you. today, they're all piggybacking off of Trump in order to raise these big, big dollars. Whether it's the Ron DeSantis yep. of the world, whether it's the Lauren Boebert's of the world, guaranteed. Joe Biden turns around and says, I'm not running. I wanted to be a one-term president. I did a lot. I did an infrastructure bill. I got the COVID relief package done. You know, we're now vaccinated over our 80%, so we have this herd immunity. God willing, this Omicron doesn't bring it all back or what have you. What's going to end up happening is each one of them are going to turn around and say, okay, listen, Donald, you had your shot, all right? I got to take mine. Chris Christie has already announced that he's going to be one of them. I would love to see Chris Christie fight it off with Donald because here's what they've learned. And this is kind of like um, a boxer, like a great boxer. You learn their moves by watching films. And so there's a strategy. There's a plan, right? Something as we both agree on, Donald never has, but there's a plan on how to beat the, you know, your opponent. There's a plan out there now for all of these Republicans who are going to turn around and say, listen, I now put in 50 million into the coffers for my campaign by basically, you know, kissing Trump's fat ass. I don't need him anymore. Now it's my turn. So you're going to start to see, I don't know whether it'll be the Ron DeSantis's of the world. It could be Nikki Haley will turn around and do it. Chris Christie for sure. You know, uh, probably Josh Hawley will throw his hat into the ring. And all of this loyalty, all of this fucking ass kissing that you see going on right now with Trump, right out, right out the door. Yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll basically say, Donald, you did your thing. The focus now has to be on the future, not the That's past. That's right. Because he is he is squarely focused on the past, obviously. And also, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm curious what you take on this is, but he had reasons, financial reasons for selling uh, Trump International Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue. But, I mean, if you're really planning on coming back to Washington and running again, do you, do, do, you, do you sell that property now? I'm not sure you do that. I, I, I think he's – I think that he is – He's focused on relitigating 2020 so that his people don't think he actually lost because you touched on a fundamental truth about Trump and how he operates, which is his power, his superpower is making people think that he is the ultimate winner. It's something he was somehow able to do, even as he was going through all those bankruptcies. Uh, he, he is the guy that is the super richest, the best, the biggest, the brightest, and he never loses. I am the winner. And he has, and I quote an interview that he gave from 
before he ran for president where he actually acknowledges. I mean, sometimes he's very candid, as you know. Um, he gives you insight into how he actually thinks. He's like, you can't, you can't be seen as a loser because then people won't follow you. Well, that's what he thinks. He thinks that if he, if any, if it's ever acknowledged that he lost, that all these people with the red hats will go away because he's not a winner. Yeah, he, he, it's so true. That it's so true. But remember, I was saying a couple seconds ago about you know using Donald as a. Um, as a useful idiot and so on. I mean, there were even guys that went out there and they created, you know, these packs. And I want to talk about Donald's pack for a quick second. But there was a story in Politico, which goes back to, what was it, um, November 10th, uh, not, not too long ago. Um, they raised millions for Trump, spent barely any of it on him. Now they're indicted. I mean, there are, there are these guys, um, what was his name, uh, Matt uh, Tunstall and Robert Reyes, they basically raised um, like, I don't know, uh, $3.5 million, um, you know, claiming that it was for the benefit of Trump. And they said something like $19 were distributed, uh, something like that, which left them, uh, I don't know, some, something like one and a half, two million dollars that they ended up keeping for themselves and using and so on. My point is, they all see Trump as a useful idiot. But here's something that Trump also did, whoever advised him on it. Trump has his own pack. And if you read the fine print on it, I think it's only 85 or 90% of it. Donald has 100% complete discretion. So he could use that money to pay for his 757 fuel bill. He could yeah, use yeah, it yeah. in order yeah, to, yeah. You know, to buy a painting. Whatever he wants, he can use it for. That's not what the super PAC is supposed to be. So when you say that financially he has problems, yes, the business is in real problem. They have real problems, not just financial because of the amount of distrust and distaste that people have for Donald and the company, but the fact that the company is now indicted by Cyrus Vance Jr., the New York DA, as well as Tish yeah. James, our attorney general here in New York. So, you know, would that affect it? Well, it certainly took away money. Um, out of their pocket from the loss of the Wolman Rink or Alaska Rink or the Carousel in Central Park. Yeah, so I think they're also going to lose Ferry Point up in Yonkers. You know, there's a lot of stuff that they're doing. So are they actually going out there and selling cash? Yeah, well, they may actually owe a ton of money to the IRS as well. Maybe they're stocking up on that. But guaranteed, Trump can use these this PAC money in order even to pay part of his IRS tax bill, penalties and interest and all. Yeah. And I'm sure that the donors did not anticipate this one giving them the money. How, how, how well did you know Weissel? Oh, very well. Listen, uh, Alan and I, I think, had breakfast together. We sat for breakfast together almost for a full decade. We were always the first two to show up, um, you know, to work every single day. Do you think there's any chance? Is there any chance he turns on him, and and and, and does he have the goods to turn well, on? Him? The, I mean, the, the, you know, the the perception is. I mean, I've repeated this stuff too, but the perception is that he's the guy that knows. You know, where where, where all the bodies. Yeah, are buried. I, by the way, so the so let me start tricks. by saying, I, I is that true? The answer is yes and no. First of all, let me be very clear that the Trump organization is not Murder Inc. So when people use that expression, you know, and I know it's not literal, but and it's it's just figurative. Um, he knows where all the bodies are buried. There are no dead bodies. I promise you, at least during okay. my decade plus, 
there were no murders, there were no killings, uh, and so on. Yeah, when yeah, we're yeah, talking yeah. about it, you're talking about where. I, I, I mean the financial bodies. Why I mean, do you the, even? Uh, so here's the thing. Tricks were done. Or so whatever. the answer is he should be. I mean, maybe not. I'm asking. So me, he yeah. should be providing the information. And should he flip? The answer is 100%. And I don't even like the word flip. He should cooperate. And here's why. First of all, I don't believe you need Weisselberg at all. I believe documentary evidence is more powerful than Alan Weisselberg's 40 plus years as the CFO of the Trump organization. The numbers don't lie. People do. And we know that Weisselberg lies the same way that Trump lies. So why are we relying on only Weisselberg? Fuck him. I gave them thousands of documents. These aren't made up by me. These are documents by Mazers, the accounting firm. These are documents that exist in my handwriting on questions about Trump's net worth on his financial stability and so on. Some of them have his, his initial or signature on it. So why do we even need Weisselberg to confirm? You don't need to confirm it. It's Trump's signature. So get a handwriting specialist and then go ahead and look at his tax returns, which based on my cooperation, the district attorney has. You don't need to get him on 20 different charges or 10 charges or even five. Nail him on fucking one. Not, don't be like the Southern District of New York that ended up w walking away from, what was it, 12 sealed indictments from people? 12? And then saying that there's not enough information within which to hold him responsible for campaign finance violation? For the payments to Stormy Daniels? Really? So how is it that I end up getting charged with it? How do I get charged with Karen McDougal when that was David Pecker, another lying fucking asshole who turns around and dropped it all on me? I didn't pay Karen McDougal, and this is a mistake that's made throughout the media. And each and every time I read it, it, it angers me. It really does. It angers me because media, newspapers, and so journalists, they all say, we want to get it right. We want to get it right. So after the 15th time, I'm telling you, you're getting it wrong. I never paid 150000 to Karen McDougal. David Pecker did. I never spoke to Karen McDougal. I never texted her, emailed her, or any of that. The same held true for Stormy Daniels till she came on my podcast. Everything was done through the council. You know, this guy, Keith Davidson in Beverly Hills, I didn't send money to Stormy. Unlike Trump, I wasn't going to bring it in cash. We were paying it by, you know, by legal funds, which were money that I wired yeah. to his law office account. But listen, that we're just going off. I do want to just move forward and say... Your reporting offers a close-up look at John McEntee, who presided over much of the purging. Now, you describe a bullet-pointed memo that he sent to Vice President Pence at the behest of Trump, ordering him to slam the brakes on the election certification. Can you describe how McEntee went about this purge, and were others in power inclined to listen to him? What was the climate that he created in the White House? And... How come, you know, how come it just didn't happen? I mean, McEntee is the guy uh, that I think is most responsible for what happened that nobody's heard of. Okay, so you have other people, we've all like, you know, become household names. Most people don't know, you know who McEntee is, but most people, you know, he, he was one of those guys in the background. You know, he got fired in 2017. He was the bag man, you know, carried the... Trump's bags around and he gets fired because of his FBI background check in 2017 comes back in 2020. Um, and his message to Trump, he's 29 years old now. Um, 
his message is, I'm the guy that is here for you, only for you. And you've got a lot of people around you that have, you know, their own agendas and they're really out to get you. They're never Trumpers, they're deep state, they're da-da-da-da-da. So Trump makes him the head of the presidential personnel office. Uh, you know, this is a guy that's never hired anybody in his life. Uh, he's now in charge of all the hiring and firing for political appointees in the executive branch. That includes the top intelligence officials, the cabinet secretaries, the ambassadors, uh, the head of OMB. The head. I mean, it's, it's 4,000 plus people in the most powerful positions in our government. And McEntee, the first thing he does, which I outline, is he does his own purge of the presidential personnel office, which has like 30 people that work in it to deal with all this stuff. And he puts his friends in charge. This is, and, and I'm telling you, Michael, I've had people still loyal to Trump who have used the word Stasi and Gestapo to describe McEntee and his operation at PPO. They were like a, a secret police force within the Trump administration to go out and to seek out and to find anybody that had any indication of not being anything but totally and completely loyal to Donald Trump. And those people would be denied promotions or, or raises or fired. And that's what he did methodically throughout 2020. He takes the job in February. That's what he does. I mean, he sends these kids, these friends of his, in their 20s, most of them. A few of them hadn't graduated college yet. They go in pairs. They go, they, they go out to, to interview you know, associate attorney generals and deputy cabinet secretaries. And, and they start asking questions about, you know, uh, what one, one official was asked, you know, why did you vote in a Democratic primary a few years ago in Virginia? They were going through voting records of these people. Uh, your Twitter feed, why is it? I'm not seeing a lot about Donald Trump. Why aren't you promoting the president's agenda? Do you support the president's agenda? Uh, and these people are basically bullied and harassed by these kids. McEntee and his friends. It's really amazing. I, I, I distinctly remember because this is this question, of course, came from an article that you penned from, you know, for The Atlantic. And yep. the part that I found most interesting and unfortunately reminiscing about my time, my decade um, plus over at the Trump Organization, you nailed it when you turn around and you said when Trump wasn't happy with the answers that he was getting from White House uh, counsel Pat Cipollone. McEntee set up a rogue legal team. That brought back so many yeah. fucked up memories for me where Donald would turn around and yeah. somebody was doing something. And it made no difference who it was. Could have been Don, Ivanka, Eric. And all of a sudden he would call me and he said, Michael, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know. He goes, go around and do your thing, right? So he doesn't tell you really what to do. He just sort of tells you to do your thing. And you know instinctively what he wants you to do. In this case, yeah. McEntee is setting up a rogue legal team to figure out how to pressure Pence to overturn the vote. Now, yeah, and the memo is amazing. So I reprint the memo in its entirety. And it was actually sent via text message. And these are not the most professional operatives in the world. The bullet points, it's all about how McEntee explains in this memo, and who knows who wrote it? McEntee sent it. It was some some legal advice he got from God knows where um, about how Thomas Jefferson, when he was vice president and ran against John Adams, and it came time to count the votes, Jefferson presided over the counting of the votes like all vice presidents do, and he used his power uh, to win the election. It's a total crock. It is a historical bunk. It's not true. It's like a total misreading 
of what happened in 1801 when they counted the electoral votes. But McEntee is sending this, and basically the message is, Jefferson did it. Now you, Mike Pence, you have to do it. And of course, again, it's predicated off of a lie, uh, a a misreading of what happened. I mean, the idea that one person, the idea that one human being can overturn the will of tens of millions of voters? Yes, if it's for the benefit of Donald Trump. And that's why McEntee fell into the position that he did, because he was a familiar face going back to 2015, when in all fairness, McEntee was nothing. He used to work on the trip planning with, um, you know, Corey at the beginning and a bunch of other jerk offs, you know, like uh, Jason Miller. I mean, they were a bunch of fucking losers that were sitting around in these little side offices. You know, nobody ever thought Trump was going to win. Not them, not anybody. But ultimately, you know, he rose to, you know, to the top. And it's his it's his legacy. That will be remembered as the guy that when all of American, you said it best, when American democracy was falling apart, he was there helping to push those buttons. And, you know, that's that's going to be something to overcome. Now, I also want to say that you. What, 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 what is it? What is it that makes these people so loyal to Trump, though? I mean, look stupidity. at you. I mean, you, you, you Jonathan, Jonathan, I can't you, I can't you, answer that. It's stupidity. It's blindness. It's being indoctrinated into the cult of Trump where you feel some sort of way about what it is that you're doing. Um, it's all to please him so that he shines some fake light on you, gives you a praise, and you just crave more. And it's because everybody in that circle is blowing smoke up his ass. And if he then, you know, um, projects that smoke onto you, you feel exceptional, you feel um, empowered, and whatever your worst inclinations you for are. him as hard as anybody. I mean, you were, you were, you were, you were a ferocious advocate for, for him. Ferocious. I mean, you... And look where it lands in me. McEntee deserves no better. Yeah. Um, now, let me ask you this. You describe your time with the former president at Mar-a-Lago as both bizarre and delusional. You wrote how fondly Trump remembers a day I will always remember as one of the darkest I have ever witnessed. To him, it was a very beautiful time with extremely loving and friendly people. The largest crowd I have ever spoken before. What were you referring to? I mean, he's talking about January 6th. It's the strangest thing. He's talking about January 6th. And he actually says, you'd see this in the, in the, in the transcript of the interview. He says to me, it was, it was a great crowd. It was, they were, and, and then he says off the record, and I, and I, I feel comfortable telling you this because it, he said it elsewhere later. So I, it's now no longer off the record. But he says, off the record, there were more than a million people there. <laughs> and he said it was the biggest crowd he had ever he had ever spoken before. And he did he did say, uh, as we were talking, that it was marred a little later on. Marred. He didn't say how marred, but I assume he means when the rioters, you know, beat up police officers and bash their way into the Capitol building. But he loves that day. He loves it to this day. He loves January 6th. And he really thinks it was one of the one of the greatest moments of his political career, because finally people came to fight for him. And, you know, this his biggest complaint about people who work for him or people who are his closest allies is they don't fight hard enough for him. Why is nobody out there fighting for me? Why is nobody on television fighting for me? This is what he's always telling these people. You're not out there fighting. So now you had people literally coming to Washington to fight for him. Yeah. And that's one of the things that 
He used to have me, you know, go out there and do. Uh, I did it willingly. I did it stupidly, but I did it willingly. And um, my God, how I wish that I had a time machine, right? But I do also want to say, because if you would, because, and I'm going to give my own personal anecdote to this, because we experienced the same sort of fucking nuttiness at Mar-a-Lago, which to me doesn't make any sense at all. You're talking about people with substantially more money, more influence, and yeah. believe it or not, more has, yeah. legitimacy than Donald, all there, eagle fluffing, right? So if you would, describe for my listeners the weird eagle fluffing ritual that occurred night, that, I mean, it occurs nightly at Mar-a-Lago. What was the atmosphere like when yeah. you were there? So, so first of all, he, 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 has, the, he has me do the interview and he, and he tells me to come at 5 p.m., Interview ends up starting at about 5.30. And we, he sits me down right in the middle of the lobby at Mar-a-Lago. This is the area that you have to walk through on your way out to the patio for, for drinks and, and, and dinner. So right, before, right as people are arriving, happy hour and dinner, I'm sitting there in the middle of the lobby interviewing him. He wants to be seen. He wants everybody to see him, the center of attention here being interviewed. I thought that was unusual. We did the interview. Talked to him for about an hour and a half. Then he invites me to dinner. And he says, but I got to go. I've got a meeting over here. I'll be back out. I'll see you in a little while. So I go sit at a table with a couple of his aides. And uh, I'm sitting there kind of eating my appetizer when suddenly I start hearing people clapping. I'm like, what is that? And then the clapping gets louder. And then pretty soon everybody's on their feet clapping. It's because Donald Trump is walking from the residence part of Mar-a-Lago through that little colonnade by the courtyard. And they all, once people start spotting him, everybody stands up to applaud. The great man is coming. The great man is coming. And he walks in slowly taking in, does a few finger points, thumbs up, uh, just sucking it all in. And he stops right by his table, which is there with every, you know, Mar-a-Lago is not big, you know, I mean, you, it's, you know, Mar-a-Lago, what, what is it like a, 150 people or so that, that are out there for dinner on, 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 on a given night on the patio. And, and his table is there with everybody else's, but it's got a, it's got a velvet rope around it. So he stands by the velvet rope, looks out, allows everybody to continue to applaud. Scavino was there, by oh, the way. Shocker. And he turns to me, Scavino turns over to me. He was at another table, turns over to me. He says, come on, Carl, aren't you going to applaud? I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. So he finally tells everybody, okay, it's enough. And then he sits down and eats. And then I turned to the guy next to me and I said, how often does this happen? And the guy said, every night, every single night, every night. Every so I night. had the same, I had the Applaud. same. And, and these are really wealthy people. These are members of Mar-a-Lago. Like you said, these are, it's an old crowd to be sure. But I mean, these are people of means. These are, I mean, why, why do they feel a need to, it felt like, it felt like an exiled leader. So a deposed dictator from some country somewhere <laughs> uh, who has his own little enclave out in, you know, Dacha out in the, in, in the, in, in the Urals or something. And gets to kind of recreate the sense as if he were still in charge. It is. You know, nobody hails the chief anymore. It but- is, Jonathan, it is insane. And the funny thing, 
you're I'm not even going to go into my scenario because my scenario is identical to yours. It's the first table, then you come down the <laughs> stairs, right, inside the patio area, and he stands there, and as you stated, he points. He gives the, the finger point, the thumbs up, another finger point, whether it's to this guy, to that guy, to that woman. And as you also accurately stated, these aren't just billionaires. These are mega billionaires. And you ever see the faces on them when Donald Trump points to them? It's almost as if, like, you know, I just got nominated for, right, for... He pointed right, to me. Wow. I just got, you know, I, I'm going to be the homecoming king or I'm going to be the homecoming queen. You know, it's like this big or a valedictorian. All of a sudden, it's like, whatever it is, they, he points to them and all of a sudden they become elated. I bring that story up because I hope that kind of answers your earlier question to me on why. Why do people do it? And there's a cult-like atmosphere, not just at the Trump organization, where I was deep, deep, I mean, I was, you know, knee-deep into that shit. The same thing at Mar-a-Lago. And these are people that don't work for Donald, right? These are people that are richer than Donald, smarter than Donald. And yet, the fact that he fucking finger-pointed them, you would think that they just won the Mega Bowl. They're so elated. Holy shit. Hey, did you see that? Fucking Donald pointed to me, to me. It wasn't to you, it was to me. And then you see the fighting goes on the table to table. It wasn't pointing, you was pointing to me. You know? I mean, it is truly, you know, it's truly amazing to me, and I, I don't get it either. And so, you know, what, what do we do? We'll both scratch our heads and say WTF, yeah. right? Now... You, you previously written a book critical of Trump, but he nonetheless granted you access and interviews anyway. I heard you describe how the interview took place in the main hallway, right, of Mar-a-Lago, so everyone could see, you know, Trump being interviewed, and then he clearly, clearly let everyone know who you were that walked past, right? Yeah. Even if it was staff. Hey, by the way, you know, this is the great Jonathan Carl. Yeah, you see Jonathan Carl on television, yeah. ABC. Hey, you know, what do you think about that? Hey, it's Jonathan Carl. You know Jonathan, right? Greatest reporter, greatest journalist ever. Tell me if I, if yeah. that's not, yeah, of course it. I got you it. Got I watch this no, bullshit happen. I watch this bullshit happen, you know, day in and day out. You know, what was the rest of your time like with the president? Did, I mean, did he, did the mask ever slip off? Did he ever say anything other than, Obviously, what you just said, he goes, oh, you know, this is off the record. Obviously, he didn't want it to be off the record. He wanted you to use it, right? But he doesn't want right, to. Donald Trump doesn't want to be braggadocious, right? Not that he could spell it right. and knows what it means, but he doesn't want to be it anyway. Did the mask ever slip off? Did he ever fuck up in the conversation with you? Almost like the way he did, um, you know, with Woodward, you know, where... He actually acknowledged that he knew of the severity of the coronavirus. Was there anything that came out that you just turned and said, yeah, yeah I, why I, the fuck did he say that? I think there is. I mean, I think there is. And, and, I, and, and as many things as we've heard him say, and it's so hard to be surprised by any of it. But when I asked him about Mike Pence and... You know, and, and it was a simple. And by the way, it's so much better to do an interview like this without television cameras. I mean, yes, he we're on display in the middle of this thing, but there's like a, you know, there there, there there's an informality to it all. Um, and and I was like, you know, were you concerned about him? Was my was my question? It's like, were you concerned about him during the riot? You know, you know poor guy, he got evacuated from the chamber. They were like trying to, and he's like, no, no, no. I knew he was fine. He was fine. And that that's one thing that was you know, just kind of callous. 
But when I said, but they were chanting, hang Mike Pence. And he said, it's common sense, John. It's common sense. You can't pass on a fraudulent vote. So he's, he's actually, he's defending the people that were trying to or calling for the murder of his vice president. That I think is, I think that's might be the single craziest thing that he's ever said as president. You think that he wanted them to actually hang Mike Pence? I, I, I don't. I, I disagree, don't, by but, the way. Well, I mean, I, I, I think that he liked that they were saying it. That they, they were showing their anger in such an extreme and un, unvarnished way. I don't I don't think he literally wanted them to hang Mike Pence, but but when you're defending it and you're explaining it, it's almost like what's the difference? There is none. Um, there is no difference. And Pence was and I, I go into detail about, you know, Pence is the most loyal guy that I mean, come on, this guy never uttered a word critical of Trump uh ever. And But what he did on that day was actually, first of all, the only thing he was allowed to do legally, but it was also, it it was a true act of bravery. And I don't mean just not doing what Trump called on him to do, but I recount how all of the other congressional leaders, Pelosi, Schumer, McConnell, McCarthy, they all, their security details rushed them off Capitol Hill to Fort McNair, secure army post. And he refused to go. And he actually, there's, there's this, it, it might be the only time that Pence ever yelled during those four years. He actually yelled at his secret service agent who was telling him, we've got to go. He's like, he, he yells that I'm not going anywhere. I've got a job to do. And he refuses to leave Capitol Hill. He stays there. You know, I, I saw the pictures of where he was uh, in the bunker down below, but the loading dock. I mean, this guy was, it was an act of bravery, and Trump didn't give a crap. Yeah, and Donald um, doesn't give a crap, Jonathan. And let me be really clear. I do believe that he would have liked to seen him hang. Not not because... Not because... I mean, not because say, I'm, No, I mean, I'm telling you, because then he... I mean, you're the guy that told me there are no actual bodies at the... He's, uh, at the by the way, he's not... The, and he would Trump not... Oregon. And he would say, I'm not the one that did it. The people's will have spoken. And that's because they're stealing the election. He would try to use it for his advantage. Trust me, I really know the, de- the demented personality of this guy. Um, he does... He's immoral, so he has no empathy or feeling for anyone. If Mike Pence or somebody would have gotten hurt, right, or killed and he could use it to his advantage, he would. All right. That's just that's just how I know him. And it's sad that this guy was president. But look, I have two questions more for you, Jonathan. You know, as I said to you early on off off, um, you know, off the recording that the hour goes by quick. But if you would. Yes. If you this is it's like this is a double question here for you. Walk me through the ridiculous debate prep that was largely taken over by Rudy Colludi Giuliani, who seemed to want to focus solely on Hunter Biden instead of the issues. And then, of course, Rudy's female counterpart, the wackadoodle Sidney Powell, who played a much larger role in the post-election maneuvering than people even realize. How close... Do you think we actually came to Trump attempting to make some of her more outlandish edicts a reality? Because between Powell and Giuliani, it's like dumb and dumber or crazy and crazier. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, on the first thing, I mean, the, the debate prep, first of all, that was the super spreader event. I mean, there was may have the, the, the Amy Coney Barrett stuff was going on, the, the announcement in the Rose Garden that was Saturday. There was a debate press session before, there was a de- debate prep session after, and there was one the following day on Sunday. So there were these three sessions with Chris Christie, you know, playing the part of, of Joe Biden. And Giuliani was just by, by all accounts, I, I spoke to several of the people that were there for this, described Giuliani just kind of unhinged talking about Hunter Biden. We don't need to prepare all these other things. All we have to do is talk about Hunter Biden because then nobody's going to care about anything else. This is so big and you're not going to believe the evidence. And he, and he brought up an iPad with him because <laughs> he wanted everybody to see this video and he tries to make it go and, and it keeps failing. It's like, wait, wait, no, wait, one more second. Let me play. And he keeps coming back to it. He never, they never could. It's kind of like, <laughs> you know, uh, reminded me a little bit of the, uh, the old song Alice's restaurant by Arlo Guthrie with uh, the eight by 10 colored glossy photographs with the paragraph, you know, the circles in the eyes and the paragraph in the back mm-hmm. of each one that the judge won't see because he's a blind judge, but he couldn't get anybody to see the video. He couldn't, he couldn't get to see anybody, but, uh, but he was so disruptive that Meadows, Meadows gets him locked out of the second debate prep session that afternoon. And Giuliani shows up at the at the gate to the White House and his name is not on the list and he gets turned away. And of course, he's able to call directly to Trump and he gets in for the final session. But that was that was Giuliani. And, you know, in terms of Sidney Powell, I mean, what one of the one of the stranger things that happened, I think, probably ever in the White House under any president was the meeting on December 18th that Sidney Powell, Michael Flynn, who had already called for martial law, um, uh, and um, and and Byrne, the, uh, the 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 former the, the founder of uh, of Overstock.com, these these three, along with another lawyer who was tied to 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 the group, basically talked their way into the White House. I mean, they 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 get cleared in by somebody. I, I was unclear. I've heard I have theories. I have unclear who actually cleared them into the gate. But once they got in, they were able to get themselves to the Oval Office. They did not have an appointment with Trump. Uh, 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 Byrne had never met Trump before. Uh, Flynn had not seen Trump since he was fired. And Sidney Powell, and they're all there. And it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a meeting that goes on for four hours. I describe it in detail in betrayal. And Trump was ready to make Sidney Powell either special counsel or White House counsel, by the way, he was considering. Uh, she had executive order there with her uh, to sign. I mean, it's it's really it's really amazing and and just unbelievable. Except it actually did happen. Yeah. Well, you know, Jonathan, as we get to um, the final, you know, the final question. Um, let me just tell you, as far as betrayal is concerned, I mean, it's truly a, a, a great read, uh, and you know, it's really uh, a front row seat to all of the mishigas, you know, the nuttiness that's going on inside uh, Washington. I just wanted to tell you that. Uh, but my last question to you. Thank you. Do you worry that we, mean, that we may never get a full accounting of January 6th, nor will those most responsible be held accountable should the Democrats lose the majority in the House during the midterms? I mean, I, I think that we largely, in fact, have an accounting of January 6th. There are more details to learn. I, I'm actually hopeful that the January 6th committee is going to is going to shed more light, but we largely know. I mean, th- th- this was something that was directed and ordered by Donald Trump. Um, and, and, and we 
you know, I mean, it, it all happened before our eyes. Uh, some of the details that some of which aren't betrayal, I think there'll be more details to come. We'll, will further our, our understanding of that. But that's, but that's what happened. Uh, you know, Donald Trump tried to stop the democratic peaceful transition of power. Um, and he came damn close to succeeding. So the second question I think is the more difficult one. You said, will anybody be held to account? Um, and as somebody who has paid a dear price yourself um, for uh allegations that are nowhere near of the magnitude of what we're talking about, not even in the same, I mean, even if everything is true, that's about, I mean, this is, it's an entirely different league. This is, this is a, this is a, a crime against our nation. This is, this is, this is the ultimate highest of high crime uh, uh, that, that there can be. This is, this is effectively an act of treason. Um, and, you know, Right now, we see the people that actually stormed into the Capitol uh, getting sentenced and, and getting, you know, facing the, the justice system. But that's only part of the story. Yeah. And that's not the big part it's of the not. story. The big part of the story is the effort to, to undermine our, our democracy. Yeah, I mean, it's not breaking into the Capitol. It's not assaulting a police officer. Those are terrible things. But that's that is not the most serious thing that happened. Right. I think you paint an amazing picture on that in betrayal, whereby it's not the big picture they're the they're the the cog in the wheel it's the wheel that people want to see it's donald trump it's you know even bill Barr, despite the fact as you talked that he knew it was bullshit from the beginning it's uh rudy giuliani it's don jr it's all of the incitement of it it's the fact that on january 5th that they had already pre-planned it with steve bannon across the street at the hotel i mean these are real crimes against our constitution um our democracy, and against all citizens, Republican, Democrat, Independent. And I think you capture that brilliantly uh, in Betrayal. And congrats. Great, great book. Great read. Thank you. Hey, Michael, great to talk to you. And uh, I, I, I really appreciate you having me on the podcast. Congrats on the success of the podcast. I, I, I never in, uh, would have imagined this, this would be... Uh, this would be part of your career turn, but you're, uh, you know, you're one of the hottest podcasts in the country. Which is so, funny because uh, my so, mom, so. Well, as a kid, she would be like, why don't you just shut up already? Nobody's interested in what you have to say. <laughs> well, Ma, you're wrong, okay? And I know you listen to the podcast all the time. I love you dearly. Right? I really do. I love my mom dearly, but you were wrong. And one day you'll admit for the first time ever that you were wrong, Right. There are people who care what I say. <laughs> so, Jonathan, let me thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Um, hopefully, I'll have you back because I don't have to tell you. You know Sounds better great. is the, what, what are you, like the longest um, serving White House correspondent out there? I've just been around too long. That's yeah, all well, I mean. it means you have a few gray hairs. <laughs> but your, your continued yeah. you know, um, reporting is so relevant and so necessary. And I thank you for that uh, as well. And I definitely hope to have you back on the show. All right, take care, Be sir. well, John. We'll see ya. And now for today's mea culpa. In speaking to Jonathan Carl, I almost shuddered at the combination of pure, naked evil on the part of Trump, coupled with an almost willful incompetence on the part of his coterie of sycophants and toadies. It's a reminder that despite all claims to the contrary, expertise and experience count. Trump showed us full stop that damage that can be done should someone willfully dangerous occupy the White House. 
Much of what passes for checks and balances on the power of the executive branch is no match for the avarice and greed of Donald Trump. The precedence created to safeguard the republic from tyrants relies on sort of gentlemen's agreement from the individuals who occupy the seats of power to navigate their seat of power with a sense of decency. But what happens when the person in power has no fucking shame, no decency, no moral compass whatsoever? With Donald Trump, we have come to the hypothesis of naked greed and corruption. The moral of the story in Carl's book and many others is that despite the damage the Republic held, the guardrails, while being imperfect, ultimately held. Did they really, though? Or did they reveal a weakness in the system that is only now being exploited to maximum effect by a resurgent authoritarian GOP hell-bent on using everything in its power to overturn the system once and for all? Each week brings us further confirmation that Donald Trump and members of his regime staged a fucking coup attempt. It appears abundantly clear that they will face few, if any, consequences. Attorney General Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice give no impression that they are prepared to prosecute Trump personally or any of the other major organizers of the January 6th insurrection. And what little they are doing is moving very fucking slow. The Guardian offered new details about Trump's leadership role in the January 6th coup attempt, which was more extensive and serious than previously known. Trump made several calls from the White House to his top lieutenants at the Willard Hotel in Washington on the afternoon of January 5th and the morning of January 6th, all on the topic of ways to stop the certification of Joe Biden's election win. Trump told his team at the Willard that Vice President Mike Pence was reluctant to go along with a plan to commandeer his largely ceremonial role at the joint session of Congress and try to engineer a second term for Trump. These conversations reveal a direct line from the White House and the command center at the Willard and show Trump's thoughts appear to be in line with the motivations of the pro-Trump mob that carried out the Capitol attack. All this amounts to confirmation of what we already know. That this was a coup attempt orchestrated by a sitting president on his own country. Yet almost a fucking year later, very little has been done to bring those responsible to justice. Until this occurs, I fear we're doomed to repeat history every election cycle. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea Culpa, nothing but the truth. 